Our Advent service sermon series this year is titled, The King is Coming. You see it on the screen. The series is going to focus on looking at several Old Testament prophets. Each of the three Wednesdays, we're going to focus on one prophet. But we're going to be in, incorporating some words and some thoughts from several other prophets. And to fully understand the, the Old Testament background for the series, it's necessary that you uh, step into Professor Wayne's classroom here for a few minutes. You don't have to worry about taking notes because they're all in front of you on the sermon note sheet. All the notes are there, so you, you can put your pens away, turn your tape recorders off. It'll all become clear very quickly. You see, to fully understand the concept, the, the, the Old Testament, you really need to understand the biblical concept of a covenant. A biblical covenant is a solemn promise, a solemn treaty between two parties. And in these covenants, there's usually there a covenant of unequal powers. They're called a sovereignty or suzerainty covenant because most of the records we have of them are treaties that were made between kings. And in these treaties, the stronger power, the stronger force, and in our case, God, um, usually binds the suzerains, the, the, the weaker people, to him in this covenant. That's the form that God uses. Now we're going to see how that works out. You remember back into, I'm going to take you back into the Garden of Eden. Immediately after the fall into sin, in the middle when God is, is cursing the serpent, in the middle of that curse, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there's a promise. And he says to the serpent, he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and, and, and the, the people. And uh, the, I'm going to send one who comes and you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And in that promise is the first promise that God has a plan to redeem these newly fallen human beings. He has a plan to buy them back, to bring them back. And he incorporates that promise into a series of covenants that he makes with his people throughout the whole Old Testament. It begins already with the story of Abraham. When God called Abraham to be his, and, he, and God promised that he would give Abraham many descendants and he would give them the land. And God reiterated that promise with Abraham's children, with Isaac and with Jacob and with all the 12 tribes of Israel. And later on, when they are about to go into the, or when they are coming out of the land of Egypt on the way to the promised land, God makes that promise again to the whole nation of Israel. And that the root of the problem, the, the root of the promise is this. God has made a promise that he's going to redeem his people. And in this covenant, he binds, he, he binds the people to him and he binds himself to the people by saying this. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be God to you, and you will be people to me. And in the covenant he made with Moses, you're very familiar with this covenant, even though you probably don't know it in this form. In the, in the sections of stipulations and obligations, God says this, he said, I will be God to you, I'm going to give you this land, I'm going to protect you, and from you I'm going to bring a Savior who's going to redeem the whole world, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to have no other gods before me. I won't, don't want you to take my name in vain. I want you to worship me. 
And here's how I want you to act to each other. I want you to honor your elders. I don't want you to kill. I want you to be faithful in your relationships. I don't want you stealing. I don't want you gossiping or saying bad things about people. And I don't want you coveting your neighbor's possessions. The Ten Commandments are really stipulations and obligations in this covenant. What it means to be in a relationship where he is our God and we are his people. Carry this through another 500 years and you come to a time when the people of Israel said, we want to be like everybody else. We want to have a king. And so God gives them the king Saul and it doesn't work out very well. And then God picks David. And David is the epitome of a king. And, and God takes the covenant promise and makes it with the nation and with David and says, David's line will be on the throne forever. As long as you keep the covenant relationship, as long as you serve me as God, as long as you are people to me and I can be God to you, there will be a descendant of David on the throne and you will live in peace and harmony. And it didn't work. It didn't work. So God had to send prophets. The king was to be God's representative, but the prophets were to be God's spokesmen to speak to the king to encourage him to keep the covenant, to speak to the people to encourage them to keep the covenant. And then God, the, the role of the prophet was also to speak truth to power, to preach to the king when the king strayed from the covenant. And so you have the whole framework of the prophets and the kings and the stories in the Old Testament revolve around this idea of a covenant where God says, I'm going to be your God. I will be God to you. I'll do all the godly things that gods do for you. And you will be my people. And you will have no other gods before me. And you will honor me and you will worship me. And that was the covenant. And the people of Israel again and again and again couldn't keep the covenant. So tonight we're going to hear a little bit from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. If you ever want to recruit somebody to be a pastor, don't let them read Jeremiah. Because nothing good happened to Jeremiah. His entire ministry from 640 B.C. until after he witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., that's almost 50 years, he was hated by the people, he was abused by the king, and they ignored his message. His basic, the other, or the other book, you know, there's a book of the prophet Jeremiah, he wrote one other book. It's called Lamentations, because the whole book is lamenting about the destruction of Jerusalem that he had to see. Jeremiah's basic message is focused on the fact that the people had abandoned the covenant. And as a result, the tribes of Israel and Judah and the whole city of Jerusalem stood under condemnation from God. And in the midst of that whole long book of, of judgment and despair and, and warning, there's a three or four section long, chapter long section that's called the Book of Consolation. And in the middle of all that, those words of judgment and warning and condemnation stands a message of hope and promise. And it's those, from those chapters that the Old Testament reading from before was taken. I pray that our Advent worship in the next three weeks helps us prepare and rejoice. Because a long time ago, God promised that a king would come. And we are celebrating 
the birth of that king when we celebrate Christmas. But even as we look forward and prepare for that coming of the king, we are also preparing and thinking and getting ready for the fact that the gospel lesson was talking about, that this king who came once is coming again, and that the redemption he won for us, which we now experience partially, we will experience fully when he comes again. So hear these words of promise from Jer Jeremiah chapter 33. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill that good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days, at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from the line of David. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live safely because this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Where do you live? Where do you call home? You know, when you've asked me that to my parents, my mother could tell you that in the 95 years or 94 years and 11 months of her existence, she lived in two houses within six blocks of each other in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. So she could say, I can tell you where my home was. When people ask, great, when we're on trips or we're traveling or we meet people uh, and, and ask Grace and I where we're from, we say, we've been in a lot of different places in our life. We've been in various places, and then we might say, well, we lived here for 25 years or we were born there, but it's hard for us to put our finger on something and say, this is home. Many in our society are like that. We have, we have a mobile society and it keeps on moving. And not only is, uh, do we physically move, but it seems that the time and space that we live in kind of gets messed up because of technology and the way things move. Instant communications. Uh, if, I had, if I had planned this, I could probably get on my phone right now and call Bethlehem and we could have a conversation. Maybe we could do some FaceTime with somebody in Bethlehem right now. We could do it because we have the technology. Tell you what, I still get confused because every once in a while I'm watching a program on television and when I'm skipping through the commercials, they still have election ads on and I don't want to see that. <laughs> but I start thinking back, I say, wait a minute, I thought that happened already. You see our time and our space and everything gets messed up and we get disoriented. We, we don't know about our home anymore. And it's interesting because sociologists have, have studied this for a long time and they've come to the conclusion that a, a safe and stable home life is the most positive, has the most positive effect on child development. If a child knows that they have a safe and stable place and they're surrounded and nurtured in the home, that's the number one predictor of success. A safe, stable home is something that adults reflect back on. How many times, maybe over Thanksgiving with your family, you sat around and you were telling stories? Uh, recently, I spent some time with my brother, and every time we stopped to talk, we started talking about stories from when we were kids. We only remembered the good times. We didn't remember the times when he tied me up, or I tripped him, or we did bad things to each other, you know? But it was, it's, we think back to the good times. 
I think that's a universal truth that's, that's part of all cultures and all times and in all places. I don't know a lot. I can't prove a lot about the emotions of home life in Bible times. But we know that family and land and home and hearth were part of the anchors that, that held the society together. It was dangerous being out on the road in ancient Palestine, just like it's dangerous to be out on the road today. But when the prophet Jeremiah was talking about home, he was, he was talking about something even greater than the traditional family home. He's talking about the home for the whole country, the nation's home, the people's home. And throughout the Advent services this year, we're going to be talking a lot about God's kingdom and the coming of God's kingdom and what it means to be the people of God in that kingdom and what it means to dwell and live and be together as the people of God. In the days of the Old Testament prophet, the kingdom of, of God on earth was under the leadership of the king, the Davidic king, the, a king in the line of David. And the king had his palace. In all ancient societies, all ancient Near Eastern societies, you'd come to the capital city and there you would find the palace, and next to the palace would be the chief temple for the god of that, of that region, that city. For our spiritual ancestors in the Old Testament, that was Jerusalem. And in the heart of Jerusalem was the temple mount, Mount Zion, where the temple was. And that the king's palace, his home, was right next to the temple, same word in Hebrew, palace and temple. Uh, it was the dwelling place of God, the place where God symbolically met his people in the midst of the, of, of the city. The king had his palace and God had his temple. And God was represented in his ruling by the work of the king. I think there's something, there's an aside we have to place here. There was a good deal of tension throughout the Old Testament between the king's palace and God's temple. The king sometimes forgot that his palace was next door to God's temple and not the other way around. But you could see the tension. You know, the king was always trying to usurp the role and power of God, or, or was often trying to do that. And in the time of the prophet Jeremiah, both the king and the temple were being threatened. That's what's going to happen, Jeremiah said. Even as Jeremiah was writing, and he saw this happen, and he lived to the other side of it, was that the armies of the Babylonians had surrounded Jerusalem and were besieging it and in a few short years would level it, literally level the palace, the temple. It was all going to be wiped out. And Jeremiah is predicting or, or prophesying that this is going to happen, but he also gives an explanation for it. Jeremiah had to make clear that this wasn't happening because God was being defeated. This was happening because God was, had to destroy his, his temple, had to destroy the palace because the people had forsaken their God. In a sense, God couldn't be their God because they refused to be his people. They chose to follow the ways of the world. They chose to adopt the religious practices of the societies around them. They had assumed that they could control God. They looked at the covenant and said, hmm, 
We got this. We'll get some priests who make sacrifices. We'll go to the temple once in a while and we'll say, see God, we're being your people. You got to be our God. Now do what we tell you to do. And the result was that the armies of the Babylonians had surrounded the city and were about to level it. Didn't look very good. In the eyes of the international press, maybe the, the CNN or Fox News of their day, uh, the siege of Jerusalem looked just like another political power play. It was aggressive and expansionist. Uh, Babylonia, the dominant empire of the world, about to swallow up little Israel and Judah. If you ask the king and most of the people, they felt that somehow God was being unfair. They said, hey, we have a couple people going to church. Hey, we're burning some animals. Why are you mad at us? And God simply shook his head and told the prophets that you are not my people. You don't love me and you don't serve each other. So a prophet like Jeremiah had to stand up to the false prophets. They were prophesying peace, peace. But Jeremiah said there is no peace. Jeremiah stood up to the king who refused to believe that it was his actions and his decisions and his practices that were bringing about this catastrophe. But Jeremiah had to point to him and say, you are not being what God has called you to be. You are not serving, you are not leading, you are not setting the example. And look at the people. Instead of caring for one another, they plot against one another. Instead of supporting one another, they betray one another. And Jeremiah's message was not received well. Jeremiah became the object of scorn and derision. He was put in stocks. He was thrown into a dry well and was cast into prison. That was his salary for being a faithful prophet. But throughout all of this, Jeremiah sees a bigger picture. He knew God's judgment was coming, but he also knew that this was a part of a bigger plan, that God's plan was not to destroy his people, not to kill his people, but to restore and to make them alive again. Right in the middle of this book of Jeremiah, this book of judgment and, and, and grief, there's this bright, powerful word of promise. It speaks of God's love, his everlasting love, his commitment to his people. It says, even though this is going to happen, I still love you. God was going to practice tough love. He was going to punish them for their sins. The discipline that they needed would be enforced upon them. Their sin would be punished. Jerusalem would be leveled. The people would have to go into exile for 70 years. But it was all because God loved them. And they would come through this period of refining, purified and renewed and made whole. You see, God had a future and a hope. Just that, and, and Jeremiah, just as the siege of Jerusalem was reaching its peak, Jeremiah went out and started buying up real estate. He started buying property because he said, God who is going to take us away is going to restore it. And I know it so much that I want to start laying the groundwork for where I'm going to live when we come back. He believed and he demonstrated the conviction that God was committed to his promise. And so to those people in that time, in that situation, Jeremiah spoke the words of our text. In those days, he said, 
The day's coming when God's going to fulfill those promises he made. And at that time, Jeremiah said, yes, God's right time, not our time. At that time, God said, I'm going to cause a righteous branch to spring up from the line of David. And he's going to execute justice and righteousness, not only in this land, but for all the lands. And this is the name by which this Savior shall be known. God is our righteousness. My friends in Christ, have you been away from home for too long at some point in your life? You know what the feeling is? It's rough out there and, and you just can't wait to get back home. Bad things happen sometimes when we're on the road, when we're away from home. I think we can find a lot of parallels between the sins of the people of Judah and our, and our own sins in our own time. I think as human beings, we are often tempted to rely on our own resources rather than depending upon God. We say, don't worry, God, I've got this. I can handle it. I can take it. I've, I, I can solve it on my own. Too often we take, we fail to take God seriously, figuring that sounds pretty hard. He probably doesn't mean that. I think we can do it better our own way. When we hear the command from God that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, we say, yeah, yeah I'll get there sometime, but maybe not right now. And when he tells us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, we, I think the first thing that often pops into our head is how small can I make that definition of neighbor that I have to love? You see, like the people of Judah and Israel, we're fallen human beings. We need redemption. We need to have the Savior come to us. We need to have that broken house rebuilt. We need to have that knocked down palace built back up. And we know it because deep inside, we have this longing for a home. We have, we have this longing to be with God's people. We have this longing to reestablish to and renew and, and nourish the relationship that God has with us. For we hear his word and we know that we are loved and we are saved and that we dwell securely in his hands. Can you imagine what it must have been like for the people in Jerusalem? They kept waiting for God to do something, even though they kept living outside of the covenant. They kept listening to the false prophets. They kept believing the, the crooked politicians. And then one day the walls came down and the city was leveled and they got carried away and they woke up and here they were in Babylon. They weren't in a holiday inn. They weren't there to visit the ancient site of the Hanging Gardens. They were in exile, far from home. But in the midst of that exile, the words of the prophets continued to come to them. You said, you see what you have done and what the consequences are. But wait till you see what God will do because he's going to reverse those consequences. And he's going to restore the relationship and he's going to bring you back home. The home that God is talking about through the prophets is a home that's far greater than the capital city of the nation. It's greater than the safest home you ever lived in. It's a home that's founded on his love, 
built by his ministry, by his coming, by his life and his death and his resurrection. And it's constructed just for you because of the fact that he loved you and he gave his son to die for you. So the word of hope, as we look forward to another week of preparation for celebration of Christ's birth, is the promise that God has a hope and a future for his people. Back then, in the time of Jeremiah, God promised them a new city and a new king when they came back from exile. Yep, the old king and the old city had to be, they had to be, had, had messed up and it had to be destroyed. But God found a way to punish the sin and save his people. And he promised them a new and better king. He said, there's going to be one in the line of David who's going to be born. And he is going to be God, our righteousness. He is going to be the Messiah. He is going to be the one who saves you. And Jesus came, and we celebrate that birth. Back then, in the time of Jesus, there was one born of the house and line of David. He was a new and greater David. He was a son in the line of David, but he was also David's Lord and God and King. And he came to usher in a new age, an age where people lived in relationship with God without a capital city, where they lived as the body of Christ, where they lived to be with one another and strengthen one another and to be nurtured by one another. That's where we are right now, in these Advent days of preparation. We can celebrate right here, right now. We have a home. We have a city, if you will, a place where we call home, a place where, where God surrounds us with his everlasting love. We are told in, in the New Testament that as sons and daughters of God, we have been built up and shaped into the body of Christ. We can call it a church. We can call it our faith family. We could call it the body of Christ. Here is where our King comes, our Lord Jesus Christ, where he comes to be our Savior and our Lord, a place where he comes regularly with his body and blood to remind us of our forgiveness, of the fact that we have been renewed and empowered to be the people of God and, and live in harmony and in support and in ministry and fellowship with one another. So where do you live? Where do you call home? Where's that place of safety and security and salvation and life? In the weeks ahead, with your overfilled schedule, with your shopping runs, with your cards to write, remember you have a home, that you have an anchor for your life, that there's a home right here with God now, and that he is already building a place for us to be with him for all eternity. He has come, and he is coming again. He comes in love, and forgiveness, and power, and renewal. The king is coming. He's coming again. And all God's people said, Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. 
We thank you also for the words of the Old Testament, the words of prophets who explain and remind us of your love and your power to see how you have acted throughout history to, to fulfill the promise you made back at the beginning of time, the promise to be with us, to nurture us, to save us, to be in fellowship with us, and to finally take us to be with you for all eternity. So as we prepare once again to celebrate the coming of the King, Lord, we pray that you would be with us each and every day. Remind us of, of your love. Remind us of your calling. Remind us of our ministry. And remind us always that the King is coming. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>